Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so that you can create products customers love. And I have a great story. I have often discovered new insights about developing and managing products when talking with someone that's in a different industry than I normally work in. So when I had the chance to talk to the creator of Dave's Gourmet, especially foods company, I jumped at it. They make a wide range of products, including gourmet pasta sauce, hot sauce, condiments, and spices, and it is a great story, full of many great stories. Dave Herkshop. Dave Herkshop is the founder and creative force behind Dave's Gourmet. He joined us to discuss how to go from idea to award-winning food product. And remember, if you hear anything along the way that you want to go back to, we take the notes for you. You'll find a summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 257 That's also a great way to share it with others. If you have product managers who you know would benefit from this information, as many already are, please let them know about this. Just send them a link to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 257 to hear about this or theeverydayinnovator.com to see a list of all of the past episodes. Now, let's talk to Dave. Dave, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to be talking with you. I thought this was such a great fit for our podcast because you are an innovator and you create food products. And before anyone goes, but I don't do food products. I think we often learn the most when we look at things outside our industry, but are related to the work that we're doing. So I think this will just be great to discuss. You do have an interesting background I wanted to ask you about first. I love getting people's backgrounds and kind of see what was the thread that got them from where they were to how they became an innovator or product person. And you were at BU, Boston University, I have an affiliation with them as well, uh, studying Soviet and Eastern European studies. And somehow you went from that to like four years later doing this gourmet food company. What was that journey about? So it's always that common thread and and the common thread's not always obvious, right? Mm. So, uh, you know... Uh, I think I'm part of that that group that can call themselves ADD, uh, which a lot of entrepreneurs probably can claim. Uh, and so for me, uh, for ADD people, what what motivates them is excitement. Um, it's that 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 thrill. So you know, for me, I watched too many James Bond movies. I thought, hey, it'd be exciting to be a spy. So Soviet studies major. Mm-hmm. When that wasn't going to pan out, uh, you know, I, I was always looking for what's exciting, what's interesting. Hmm. Um, so I opened a taqueria because I thought that was cool. Um, you know, I'd give that a try. And then within that, we had all these drunks come in and I don't like drunk people that much. So I started making really hot sauces just to mess with them. And I thought that was fun and exciting. So um, I just sort of followed the thread of like, huh, why are these people eating this incredibly hot stuff and they like it? And like, well, how can I make it even hotter then? And, and so then, you know, then the creative brain kicked in and said, well, gosh, I have an idea. I can make the hottest sauce in the world. And uh, we, had, we actually did it. It worked. And you have insanity sauce, right? The hottest sauce in the world. Well, at one time it was clearly the hottest and now it's, it's among the hottest. Uh, and we have hotter sauces than that ourselves. But yeah, Dave's insanity sauce. Um, we think we've probably hospitalized more people than any other food product but never overnight. 
That's good to know. It's not yes. a rush. I appreciate hot sauce, but I can't handle it that hot, but I like the flavor. That's a good connection. So you're trying to solve a problem there, trying to alleviate the issue with the drunks, and you stumbled across this opportunity. I would love to get more of the dots connected between that, but maybe you can do that just by helping us understand how do we bring a food product to market? And I'm curious because I have no experience with that. And I suspect most of our listeners don't either. How much that lines up with our experience building other physical products or software products at times too, and how we think about that. And we usually start with some insights of the problem, right? Or maybe it's a customer that we meet that gives us an insight. Where do you start with a new food product? Well, I mean, so a lot of people start at home. I mean, the great thing about food is it's so relatable. Everybody Mm -hmm. eats. So everybody has a lot of experience with food um, and they certainly have experience with what they like. Uh, So, you know, I think food products fall into two camps. There's like the better mousetrap and then there's like solving a problem. Mm -hmm. So the better mousetrap is, you know, making a salsa that tastes better or is slightly different for your tastes or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, everybody knows somebody that has that secret family recipe for something um, that, that is pretty darn good and, and maybe could be a commercial success. Um, and then there are some that solve, you know, your, your kid had a, a nutritional challenge and there was nothing on the market that, would, that you could buy. So you solve the problem by creating it. So th- those are the two camps. So once you get there, um, then the question is, can you create it at home in a way that, you know, is, is attractive, you know, is it where people would really enjoy it? Um, and you know, it looks good and, and, you know, consistency is good. Uh, and then the next question, once you've achieved that is, you know, how long will it last? You know, can you achieve a shelf life on it? Um, can it be scaled up to the production level? Uh, you know, in, in a safe, um, repeatable, consistent way. So, you know, you sort of have to solve those. Um, and where I think a lot of people fall short um, is, you know, at, the word average has a definition. And by definition, most products are average. Huh. Um, but people have like this, this product that their family loves. So they're like, hey, the world's going to love it. We love it. Um, well, that's not necessarily true. So, right. you know, the, the sort of in the survey monkey generation of like, it's really quick and easy to test out things. Um, you know, people really need to do these quick tests of, you know, will strangers who eat this type of product, will they actually like it? And will yeah. they actually pay for it? Um, so, you know, make sure the demand is there. And then, you know, there's the food safety and, and you know, that whole production side, which in the food world is actually much easier than a lot of other industries where, you know, you'd go through three years or four years of regulatory processes and, and immense upfront costs, um, which is why so many people jump into this industry. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's attainable. Like you said, we're at home making something. We have some recipes that are good. Maybe they're handed down from, from generation before or something like that. Take us through a few steps of that. So let's say I make just a wicked mac and cheese that I'm really proud of. And I think it's just just delightful. And my family says it's good too. I need to validate this to see if anyone else actually cares about this, right? Right. So, so you have your wicked mac and cheese and you need to whip up a bunch of it and, you know, uh, go to a, a mall or go on the sidewalk somewhere or, or have friends recruit a bunch of strangers who love mac and cheese for a tasting party. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, have a, 
have a hundred people you don't know who like, who like mac and cheese a lot, taste it and give written ratings, you know, and you can look up on the internet, like, um, basic tips for doing market research. So you do it in a, in a more effective way. So then you have your, your feedback as to, okay, um, this, this may have some legs, you know, and, and you might, you might test it at different price points and all that to see what people would actually pay. And, you know, is it effective there too? Um, so, okay. You think you have something, well, mac and cheese is a little trickier to make at a production level. Right. So, um, then go to the supermarket and walk it and see like, well, mac and cheese, what, how is that done? Is there's the dried box version and there's the frozen version. So yours is this gourmet thing. It's probably going to be the frozen version. So, um, Maybe you should try freezing yours and then pulling out and microwaving it. Uh You know, so when you test it, maybe that's the way you test it to see like, does that work? Um, And if that all works, then, you know, you could either go search out some people that are are co-packers, contract manufacturers um, to talk to them about like, well, what's involved in making this on the production level? Or there's a bunch of R&D consultants uh, out there who will, come in and tell you what's involved in switching this up to the production level. Um, so there, there's a little learning there. Um, but, but once you do that, you'll be able to at, at some point test, like here's the modifications we have to make for production. Um, and then you can test, well, does it still taste good? And do people still like it? Um, and so it just depends. If you want to invest more, you can go through that whole cycle and then do the testing with consumers at the end of that. If you want to like, you know, test at every stage, you can do it that way. Um, you know, one great thing is to do like consumer fairs and festivals. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can go, you sell portions of your Mac and cheese, you get cash, right? So that you get immediate money um, and you can get a lot of feedback from strangers. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a great way because, you know, it's an iterative process. Uh, you might come out with Mac and cheese that doesn't succeed at first. And you realize, well, you know, I need to switch the cheese or we're too expensive or um, we didn't expect that there'd be this layer of grease on the top that's a real turnoff for, you know, there's all sorts of things that crop up or maybe your packaging is really the problem. Um, so, um, you know, that's sort of the, the basic process and, and some things are much easier than others to, to start up. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad I picked one that wasn't quite so easy, right? Because we have to deal with extra manufacturing and possibly freezing and maybe changing the recipe a little bit to accommodate that. And so experts involved. My only familiarity with this at all is frankly watching the Profit TV show with Marcus and also a little bit of Shark Tank. And occasionally they have something that goes through it. And I've seen a few of the shows on Profit, right, where they have a food product and they're so proud of it and they're making it from scratch themselves in their own kitchen, maybe at home initially, and then maybe a little commercial kitchen that they might be leasing and making that switch to a co-packer always seems to cause some reservations with them that they're giving up some of the goodness of what's going on. Any comments on that? Well, man, it's true. And it's not only true switching to a packer. It's like if you go from one packer to another packer, there's always some difference and some change because the equipment's different and maybe the suppliers are different. So it's Mm -hmm. like it's the same cheddar cheese in both places, but it doesn't taste quite the same. So you're always working through these trade-offs of like, well, there's the cost and then there's like logistics. And then if I use this ingredient, I risk shortages or I risk some inconsistent product mm-hmm. or, 
So you're constantly going to be making trade-offs. And so you need to like understand who your consumer is and what their tolerance is and what do they like about your product. And, mm-hmm. and so you'll know what you can change and what you can't change. And if you don't, you can go out and, you know, do some, some research on your own or, or hire professional researchers. Um, mm-hmm. So it's always this process of, and then there's also like you going into business in general, I think you need to like understand what your goal is and what your strengths are and what you're willing to give up. So if, you know, if you're the, if you're the artist, you might really want the purity of your product and uh, have, have a lot of strict um, parameters around that. Well, that's fine. I've always leaned more that direction, but you probably, you often are giving up some commercial success because of that, because you care about a lot of things your customer may, customer may not care about. And that's cool. And, and people have different levels of caring and integrity and all that. You know, I've always been fine because I didn't want to be a billion dollar company. Not that I would turn it down, but, uh, you know, it wasn't that important. You know, you, you can make good money in a niche um, and become like a, a really important brand in a sense um, and do it your way. Right. And that's, that's how I, I wanted to do it. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are, are better at sort of like, hey, I'm going to trade away anything possible. I'm only going to give the consumers what they care about and I'm going to get as big as possible because it's really about the money. And that's part of our, you know, capitalistic system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, there's niches there for the different approaches. Lately, I've been learning more about third wave coffee. And I'm not a coffee person. I hang out in coffee shops an awful lot as I do work. But I just got kind of intrigued about this. You know, that there's a whole niche trying to elevate coffee like wine. And that's another level where you, where you talk about kind of the integrity of the product. Yeah. And, and you just have to understand your, your consumer because like, yeah. you know, Yerba Mate, like, I don't know how big Yerba Mate is going to get, um, but it could get huge. And there could be all sorts of like levels and nuances, like, you know, subcategories of organic Yerba Mate or like gluten-free Yerba Mate or, or Yerba Mate with varietals or, you know, it's like, uh, you know, if the category is big enough, there's room for lots of niches usually. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people choose then to go into a small category, you know, like a, even a $5 million category and decide like, hey, I can be the dominant player in that and that's good enough for them. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then great. I'm interrupting the discussion just for a moment to tell you about a really interesting experience I had recently at a professional conference for product managers and innovators, the annual PDMA conference. Now, it was a great experience because I got to help so many people. And one form of this was several times a person that I helped in the past, they came to find me. They sought me out to introduce me to someone else that they were talking to, someone that wanted to mentor their product managers to help them perform at a higher level. They recognize how important product development and management is to the success of their work and the organization. And they talk about this in terms of the increased pressures that they have. We all recognize this as product people. Wanting to create products that customers love, that's what everyday innovators are all about. We get that. But also products that meet revenue and profit expectations, we have to do that. And that can be delivered more quickly, decreasing time to market. That's a lot of needs to deliver on. And that's exactly what I help organizations do. And I have an excellent mentoring system for groups of product managers. It's called the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, or for short, the RPM Experience. Kind of catchy, RPM Experience. If you lead product managers or you are a product manager at a company with other product managers, the RPM Experience is how you can create a higher performing product team. 
And I have a quick guide that tells you how the system works and the results it provides. And you'll find that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. It's helping other companies pull ahead of their competition and helping product managers work together better, enjoy their work more, and just be more effective. And I bet it can help you too. Check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. How sensitive is this to supplier issues? Some of the companies that I work with and people that are listening are involved in manufacturing electronics and integrating electronics. And they're running into more and more supplier issues, right? Like having a product that lasts for five years becomes a huge issue because they know they may not be able to get those parts sourced after a year. Yeah. So, so I am always trying to be the tail wagging the dog. And let me tell you, if you're a tail, dog is really heavy. <laughs> Um, and often you attach to parts of the dog that aren't so great. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, like we, one of our first products was, um, uh, yellow tomato pasta sauce, hmm. right? So we use these golden tomatoes and it was a great sauce because the tomato uh, ingredient was fantastic. There was only one supplier in the world that made it. Hmm. And when they went bankrupt, we were out of business. That was it. You know? Yeah. So if we're Campbell's, we're big and we can like, we can create the whole supply chain ourselves, you know, from, from seed all the way up to puree and to our product. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're willing to put forth a lot of money and effort and are really committed to that one ingredient, as a small company, it is really tough to do that. So you're often sort of riding the coattails of, you know, bigger companies and bigger supply chains that already exist. Um, so so that's, that's one, you know, limitation where the other limitations is, you know, like we use contract manufacturing for our products, although we design our own products, but it's so happenstance of, you know, sometimes you'll find this manufacturer, they just do a fantastic job and your product is that much better. Um, You'll happen upon it, like our butternut squash pasta sauce. There's only one squash puree in the world we'll use in that sauce because it's so much better tasting. You know, so like if they didn't exist, that sauce would never have been as good but like you know when you're a tiny staff you're searching best you can but it's there's a certain amount of luck of just banging into the right person whereas Mm -hmm. if you're a huge company um you know your chance of finding the the best ingredient or the best you know contractor is so much better and you have this resources to create it if you can't find it so it's yeah i mean what you're saying is is right on it's like you know unless you're going to do everything yourself and invest those huge amount of resources or, or, you know, get a lot of investment. Um, you're constantly like trying to like wriggle or like go to a co-packer and say, Hey, I know you don't usually do this, but could you do it for me? Right. And then like, why would they do it for you? Well, you have to convince them either you're a great salesperson or, or there's huge market potential that you're tapping into or, um, so it's, it's sort of, you know, that's the entrepreneurship world though. It's like, right. if, if you want to innovate, you're going to be pushing. So you're going to be pushing suppliers. You're going to be pushing, you know, investors you are going to be pushing the market. Um, and you have to convince a lot of people on, on both ends of the, the, um, system. Mm-hmm. Good. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier on validating. And that was looking at consumer fairs and festivals, right? And I thought, you know, farmer's markets that you could participate in. 
And along with that, it seems like, I don't know if this is a good idea or not, it seems like food competitions might be helpful. Like there's barbecue competitions all the time, but I see that, you know, going to those, is that another way of getting feedback, validation that you're on the right track or not? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, so some of those are dual purpose because the media runs contests, there's independent contests, you know, going out and winning contests is a validation and B it's like a marketing vehicle too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's great. And sometimes there's, you know, festivals where you can set up a booth, sell, get cash. There's also a, um, a contest there so you can win. So, you, you know, you serve several purposes and it doesn't cost you anything aside from, from your time. Right. So, you know, but this is how I started, but I started a while ago. Um, you know, so that's one avenue. The modern avenue, which is, is not better or worse, it's just different, is sort of the online, the, the digital space, mm-hmm. um, where you can really test out things con- more conceptually. Um, you know, you can't taste on the computer screen. Um, so people at home shouldn't be licking their screen, you know. We're not there know. yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. Um, we, we will probably get there. But um, so, you know, you, you can really build uh, through Amazon and other, other avenues online really well and test things really well, mm-hmm. um, you know, visually, conceptually. Um, but, you know, food, you have to get in people's mouths at a certain point. Mm-hmm. So that's really a great way to do it. Yeah. And you need that. How does it taste? How does it make you feel? What's that experience? Kind of like there's more that goes into a really good food experience, right? And part of this is just being scrappy. And I, I want to underline that point. I was working with a really large company earlier this year that primarily has relationships with their distributors and not their end customers. And they were finding that they needed to get some actual feedback from their end customers. And they didn't have relationships with those people. And we just kicked around some very practical ideas, including go hang out in the stores where your product is sold. As people go down the aisle, watch what they pick off the shelf and ask them, why did you pick that one instead of that one? And just think of ways of getting, you know, kind of scrappy to get some feedback. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, um, the thing that surprised me at some point in business was you know, there's, not, there's not like a set way to succeed. There's a lot of different ways to succeed. And so in the food world, if you start surveying, you know, companies, let's say between five and 50 million, $100 million, who's your largest three or four or five customers? The answer varies a lot. Hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it depends on your, your packaging, pricing, market position, et cetera. Um, and some companies are great on the internet and some companies are terrible on the internet and some comp- so that there's like so many different ways to do it. Um, and so, yeah, it's about being scrappy and, you know, really having your ear to the ground of like, well, where are my consumers? Um, hmm. And what's working, that's what's not working. How can I change it? You know, like, like Justin's nut butter, um, you know, you'll hear Justin talk about how, you know, he was doing okay with his nut butters. Um, definitely not the huge success that it became, but then he pivoted and went into the little like portion packs. Right. Um, and that's what really like helped him take off. Yeah. We bought those before we ever bought the large, you know, size of butter. Right, because it was a dual purpose. You got a sale out of it, but it was also a taster to get people to buy the jars eventually. So, Well, and for us, it solved a different problem, right? Which was, I need a snack on the go for my kids. And this is an easy one to take. And it seems reasonably healthy and tasty and has protein. And so it solved that problem for me. Right, right. And, and, and Justin, you know, was mountain biking and, and he had that problem. And so he solved the problem for himself. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that... 
you're saying be scrappy, but you always have to be asking questions. How do I do better? How do I do differently? Like, how could I change it? How could I pivot? Um, you almost have to be a little bit insecure um, mm. in a good in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get too comfortable, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. I mean, it worked out for Tabasco and Heinz Ketchup and all those products, but um, there's a lot of products that that fade or go by the wayside right. because um, or limit their potential by by magnitudes because they 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 were close but they didn't pivot or shift or whatever and so their competitor came in and did that and and you know became ten times as big as they are and most of these products were never overnight successes right they had to make their way through the market what was a key point for you that was kind of a tipping point that got you more on the map in terms of selling food products you know we're an odd company because what happened was insanity sauce was like an instant hit. Because it was so much hotter and there was pent up demand. Um, And the way we did it was cheeky, but very fitting. So like it was insanity sauce. So I used to wear a straight jacket to trade shows and our booth looked like an insane asylum. And so we did a lot of stuff like that. And we launched supporting products like demented dills and mad mushrooms. And um, so, so it, it took off, but think about it, a jar of super hot sauce. How fast do you use that jar? So it, it, it was successful and, and the impact we had, you know, millions of people know the sauce, mm-hmm. but, you know, we were, we're never going to get very large. I mean, even for a small company, we weren't going to get very large. Mm-hmm. So we then, you know, we were looking for other things to do, partly because I have ADD and partly because it, it was a good business thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pasta sauces, when we did it and saw, you know, I saw this sea of red that to me said, gosh, why is it all that way? you know, could it be a different way? Like, you know, I was like, why don't we use heirloom tomatoes? They taste better than the other tomatoes. Absolutely. Um, why is it all red? Why, why can't one be yellow? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why is it tomato based? Why can't it be butter? So, so we sort of shifted and we sell a lot more pasta sauce now than we sell hot sauce. Um, so yeah, it's you know, consumed faster too, right? It's consumed faster. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, but I don't think we're known as well for pasta sauce or had the the impact in a sense, but we'll sell more, you know, and, and we're, we're launching some snacks next year. So again, that probably if it hits, okay, will will be larger than the pasta sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we do it in a way where like, it has to be a product that, you know, I find like, wow, that, that that's not out there. And that's something people would value and would help people. Um, and it's special. Um, or it's, it's not worth doing. Otherwise our business is fine and we don't, we don't have to expand. That's something we have in common, right? And all the everyday innovators listening, that notion of something that is helping people, creating value for them. Fundamentally, at least the way I think about us as a community of everyday innovators, the people listening to this podcast, we love creating products that customers love, right? That, that make a difference for them that they say, thanks for making this, right? That they light up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, I always marvel at big companies because they have this ability to be very strategic and say, you know, okay, I should go into salad dressings. That's, that's a strategic place to move. And then they do it. Um, for me, if they told me I should move into salad dressings, my next question is, okay, what can I do in salad dressings that's special and moves the market forward? Mm-hmm. Um, and that may not be always commercially as effective a question, you know, which is why why the big companies are, are big. Um, but for me, it's, in a, it's like a do or die question because 
I just don't want to launch it for launching's sake because because of the company that we are, I don't think we'd be successful um, because we're not like the exceptional sales organization. Um, although we have, you know, great people, uh, you know, it just, we're product people. So the product has to be superior right. um, or we don't want to work with it. Right. That's a really good place to start. That's how we create competitive differentiation and make our products stand out against the others. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Really good insights. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. I asked you to bring us one. Can you tell us what that was and why you chose it? I can't remember the whole quote. It's so long, but it's by, <laughs> it's by, it's by Sun Tzu, right? The Sun Tzu art of war. Um, and, and it basically says, you know, there's, there's only five tastes and there's only, you know, five, uh, uh, five colors, colors. And, um, but, you can combine those things in so many ways to make, you know, so many uh, uh, different avenues and, and directions. Um, and I always think about that in business uh, because I, I think why we've been successful is uh, I often come to things with sort of the amateur mindset. Um, I'm not, my level of expertise is not, you know, ever been that, that high. So I look at it and say, gosh, why is it that way? Um, and I understand that there's so many options. And in fact, you know, sometimes I, I think of so many options that's paralyzing, but um, you obviously have to have a way to win it down. But um, so it always sort of like, huh, you know, why are all the pasta sauces red and Italian leaning? Um, you know, and maybe there's a reason why it is that way. But, uh, you know, so it's like, understand there's lots of options. There's always a way and there's always a new avenue, but sometimes you have to back it down to like a very basic level, like, huh. And just to ask why, how, you know, the basic questions um, and, you know, and, and say, well, what if I did this to it? What if I did that to it? Um, and, you, you know, you can have a very disciplined question methodology to, to look at it lots of different ways. But um, I always love that quote because it's, it sort of fits partly because it fits what I already believe and partly because um, it really makes you think. It was a quote I was not familiar with, and I'll post the full quote with the show notes for this, but that notion that there's only five flavors, I thought, really? Five? You know, um, and maybe this is getting too technical, right? But I love that idea that, wow, we experience so much through some really basic flavors. It just depends how you combine them. And we can think of that in all kinds of contexts outside of food as well. So I appreciate you sharing it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you get just like an apple, like, Oh my gosh, I've had, I've had apples that probably tasted hundreds of different ways. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just, even within the same variety of apple, it just, mm -hmm. wow. It's always like puzzling, like, huh, how come it's not the same? Lots of variety. How can people find out about Dave's Gourmet and anything else that you want to share in terms of the work that you're doing? And if people want to get in touch with the company or anything like that. Sure. So it's uh, davesgourmet.com is our website. Um, people have questions or anything, happy to email me at uh, dave at davesgourmet.com. And, um, you know, I, I think the, the thing I always try to push out there is, you know, we welcome new people in the food industry um, or in any product industry, but um, I really wish people would just sort of test it a little more thoroughly up front and um, make sure they're adding something to the industry. Because, um, you know, otherwise it just wastes resources and, and you know, clogs it up and, and makes it harder for, for innovators to, mm. to get their stuff out there. Yeah. 
Really good. So davesgourmet.com. People can go order these incredible sauces and hot sauces, pasta sauces, hot sauces online. And you said snacks coming out next year? Yes, working hard. That's exciting. What's the nature of the snacks? Give us a quick preview. Sure. So um, the premise is that, you know, like I'm a snacker and we all snack in a way that's not really what we should be eating. Um, you know, sugar and starch is where we start. And now we're all leaning potato more pro- chips. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now we're leaning more protein, right? Which is, is better, but the average American male eats double the amount of protein they need. Mm. And the average American female is 50% more. So what we don't eat enough of is actually vegetables and fiber. Mm. Um, and because they're just simply not as exciting. So, you know, our goal is to make a vegetable snack that you want to eat because you just like it. And then it just happens to be very healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's our goal. I like that goal. I will be looking for that when it comes out. Thanks. I appreciate that. So, absolutely. So thanks again for your time, Dave. Sure appreciate the information, the insights on how food products get brought to life, even for us that aren't involved in food, but certainly in innovation, a lot of good insights there for us too. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. That was a great discussion with Dave. He gave some really practical tips and insights about how to go from the idea for a food product to tasting parties to explore it and then working through what it actually takes to make a product, such as working with co-packers. Good insights that are especially how to go from that idea to fleshing it out, right? That validation stage. And we could all use that regardless of our products. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion. I got thirsty for some Dave's Insanity Sauce, and I also want to check out the new pasta sauces, so I'll be doing that later. Also, please check out the written summary of the discussion with Dave at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 257. Share that with others, too. We want to make an impact on the product management community and help everyone that is developing product managers and leading product managers. And as always, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.